discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. everyone welcome to the total liberation podcast it is mexi and i am joined once again by my brilliant baddies nicole and Catherine. <laughs> how are you doing guys doing well thanks for having us amazing thank you for having us you may recall nicole and Catherine from previous episodes including the last one that we did on the male gaze is ruining your sex life and also your life, I would say, um, which is making waves. <laughs> people are, oh, people isn't are it? yeah, people are really enjoying it. And I'm, I'm just so thrilled because that's obviously something we wanted to talk about for a while. Um, also, uh, Nick was on uh, that episode called speciesism isn't what you think it is, which is very relevant to this discussion. I actually think that this podcast and that podcast are, will go very well together. So if you wanted to listen to both, I would, I would recommend that. Um, Catherine's been on as well, talking about sexual violence, uh, pedophilia and the systems that perpetuate them. I think Nick's been on again as well on another podcast. So anyway, you know these people, but if you don't, if you're new to the show, um, would each of you like to introduce yourselves and uh, talk about the work you do? Sure. So I host another podcast called Pink Spots, which I think most people who know me are familiar with. Uh, on that podcast, I do advice from a queer, autistic, disabled, radical leftist perspective. Um, sometimes people send in questions for actual advice, and sometimes it's more of just a talking prompt. But it's very interactive with the audience, um, audience-driven content, and we have a really good time over there. And then I am thrilled to announce that, <laughs> as everyone knows, because I've been telling everybody everywhere, I just launched a new podcast called Red Shirt Collective, uh, which is a Star Trek Next Generation watch-along podcast that I do with my friend Mike. And we talk about, we watch an episode of Star Trek, uh, we do a recap of it, and we analyze it together from, again, a radical leftist perspective. And it's a whole lot of fun. Hell yeah. I'm so excited for that podcast. <laughs> yeah, it just brought me so much joy to listen to you both. I was just smiling the whole time. Aww. Yeah, um, and I am Catherine and I have a YouTube channel called Catherine and I talk about different things from a leftist communist perspective, mostly about social and political issues. Although recently I've been really interested in cosmology and the framework through which we see the world and analyzing that. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Catherine just made a really great video called Time Is Not Linear that I also lent my voice to, which was really fantastic. So um, maybe we'll, we'll put that, we'll put all of, all of your projects in the show notes so people can check them out. Um, I also want to give a quick plug for the Patreon because we do bi-monthly political community chats over there and because we'll be releasing this episode um, 
this week. <laughs> I guess people listening aren't going to know when this week is, but uh, you know, <laughs> soon um, we're going to be hosting our next political community chat on this topic, on talking about plant sentience, on talking about the book, The Hidden Life of Trees, and just all of the amazing, wonderful implications of the idea of plant sentience. So that's going to be on the 25th, I believe we've scheduled it for. So um, yeah, if you want to check out the Patreon, it's patreon.com slash total liberation. And just a couple dollars per month, we'll, we'll get you on the Patreon and, and you can join in on our conversation next week. So uh, having said that, let's dive into the topic. I think, again, this is a topic that the three of us are very excited to speak about. And it's something that, you know, for people who care about animal liberation. I mean, I know obviously there's a lot of vegans who listen to this show and this can be a pretty scary question for vegans because we're so used to dealing with people who bring up the idea of plant sentience um, in a really cynical way just to kind of talk about how, um, you know, there's there's no point in even thinking about animal liberation or, or what a world outside of, you know, the oppressive systems that oppress both human and animals could look like. But to me, I think it's a really exciting question. Um, and I think that, frankly, as the science around this keeps developing and developing, it's something that we can't ignore. And I think that the kind of work that we've been doing on this podcast, and this is, this is why I brought up the episode that Nicole was on before called Speciesism Isn't What You Think It Is, because I think the kind of work that we've been doing around theorizing um, you know, total liberation and what that really means and really defining speciesism and really um, being clear about the kind of world that we're fighting for. I mean, I think that it doesn't, like plant sentience doesn't have to be a scary thing. And I think that it can fit really well into the kind of total liberation framework that we've been kind of developing here together. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. I also think it's just really awesome. Um, I think it's really, I don't know, I, I don't know anyone who isn't jazzed about hearing, you know, all of the cool ways that plants are actually really communal together, um, really <laughs> intelligent. I mean, I mean, that's really cool, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like trees and plants have obviously very long predated humans. So I, I would just think like, why wouldn't they have evolved into these, these really incredible ways together, right? So I think the podcast today, we will really want to tackle this idea of like what it would mean for us to take plant sentience seriously um, and how that would affect, you know, our, our politics, our actions, and um, the kind of worlds that we're imagining creating in the future. So I don't know if you guys have any initial thoughts um, on the book or on any of this before we kind of dive into the science. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think, you know, it's easy to shut this question down because it challenges, I believe. And again, this is why that episode that we did with Maureen about, you know, speciesism isn't what you think it is, is a good listen, because I think in that we started this conversation of challenging some of these ideas we have in the vegan movement about what animal liberation really means and what it's supposed to look like. And I think here, if we're excluding plants from our analysis, then we're performing our own brand of speciesism and we're still being quite human centric. We're extending personhood to animals because they express their sentience in ways that we as humans can recognize. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it is accurate 
to deny plants that same extension of personhood or that same consideration. So I think in order for us to have actually truly solid analysis and theories that were, you know, ideology that we're operating under, I think we have to be open to these kinds of conversations. And I think the fact that, you know, we're trying to have it here outside of someone who might be just saying these things very cynically and trying to do a gotcha, you know, I hopefully we can provide something of a safe space for us to have this conversation in a really legitimate and open kind of way and, you know, come out better for it, come out with a stronger ideology in the end that actually serves the earth as a whole better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just to add to that, I think it might be good to start with just saying that I think a lot of people when they hear us talk about plant sentience they think that we're inherently anthropomorphizing plants so we're trying to um, humanize plants in some way but I think that it's actually trying to do the opposite. Um, we're not trying to project ourselves onto plants but we're trying to just open ourselves up to what plants can teach us about ourselves and about the world and when we're giving um, personhood to plants or sentience to plants it's not saying that these are um, human people um, we're just saying this is a different kind of person it's a tree person or it's a flower person um, or grass person and it's just about it's not about let's try and see how we fit into or see how we how we can recognize ourselves in them but it's about how we may recognize them in us in some ways and I, I don't know I really like the idea of sort of plantifying humans in a way instead of humanizing plants and trying to see things through the lens of plants and what do they care about how can we learn to listen to them how can we learn to see the world through their eyes and um, yeah so I don't think it's about placing value on certain plants based on human resemblance like I don't know I think there's often a tendency when it comes to um, animals that we try and we try and see we care about animals based on how much of a resemblance they have to us so like we care more about monkeys and fish for example um, and that's very much like a anthropocentric worldview but I think instead we're trying to say plants may in many ways not have so many of the things that we do like brains and lungs and things like that um, but we can still give them personhood regardless so I think in that way it's also challenging a very anthropocentric worldview and yeah and I think that um, it's often used as a way to completely shut down conversation to just say that um, oh this is anthropomorphism and I think that actually it's more disrespectful if we um, completely ignore what we can learn from plants altogether. Um, like that is worse to me than potentially, um, yeah, anthropomorphizing nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that even like even the idea of giving them personhood, it's like I, I like what Nicole said in the the speciesism podcast that you know, our goal shouldn't be just to humanize everything, like humanize animals or humanize plants, but to actually animalize humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think we'll get into this later, but um, 
in the book, The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Volbin, which we all read uh, in preparation for this podcast, he talks about how the difference between animals and plants really in terms of like taxonomy is that plants photosynthesize their own food. So that's what would categorize something as a plant. And an animal is an organism that needs to subsist on eating other living things, either plants or animals. And so we as animals, like the only thing that's separating us from plants is this idea of how we actually make our or you know get our food right we don't photosynthesize things ourselves but like that line is obviously a line that we have drawn and um as we learn more and more about kind of like the inner life of plants and trees you know yeah it, it's not it, i think it's important it's it's not scary to kind of blur these lines um because i think it actually opens up a whole other a whole other realm of possibility for, you know, existing in the world and, and like cosmologies, as you said, Catherine, um, that can be so much more productive for us. So anyway, I think we'll, um, we'll circle back to this later, because I think we want to um, uh, end the discussion with like all of the implications of actually taking plant sentience seriously. Um, but I thought we could maybe start with what the book covers in terms of um, some of the, the emerging science around the inner life of trees. Um, so maybe I'll start with just some things that I found really interesting and then we can kind of like just go from there. So uh, yeah, first of all, in the introduction, he actually compares forestry to butchery and says that foresters uh, basically are as in tune with the inner life of um, trees as uh, butchers are with animals or whatnot. He's coming from a background of being a forester and really critiquing what he saw in that industry and um I mean, just obviously the forestry industry is incredibly uh, unnatural. It's all about just maximizing a product um, and not really about nurturing any kind of forest or any kind of ecosystem or what whatnot. So he's coming from this place of really critiquing the forestry industry. And then I just find it industry, uh, sorry, interesting how he compares that to our kind of industrial animal agriculture industry as well, or kind of industrial plant agriculture. And uh, I think that, yeah, we'll, we'll again kind of circle back to this, but I just, I found that really um, striking because yeah, if we don't think about trees as beings with any kind of like sentience or worth or whatever, it becomes easier to treat them as these, you know, products that we can just grow in these plantation style rows um, and not really have any kind of care about either their lives or like the, the broader ecosystem that's around them. But some of the some of the amazing kind of science that I think uh, is really interesting. So I guess I'll start with talking about this idea of plants helping each other and plants being really communal. Um, and this book obviously focuses a lot on trees, but I also have a supervisor who's uh, a botanist, and he's told me a lot of stories as well about different species of plants that kind of that behave really similarly. Um, but in the book, um, he talks about beeches and other trees of the same species being connected to each other via the roots, and they share energy with each other, um, and that sharing food and energy with each other is actually the rule and not the exception. Um, and they're connected through the roots and also through these uh, fungal networks. And I think we're learning more and more as well about these mycelial networks that really connect everything in the forest to the extent that now some people believe that forests themselves are these kinds of super organisms, kind of like anthills that are truly inter interconnected and, and end up being greater than the sum of their parts. 
Um, but what's interesting to me is that, you know, different trees can actually determine um, through their root systems, they can tell if they're running into another tree of their species or not. And even some trees will, you know, like often the same species will be the ones sharing food, but there are some species that will also um, nurture their quote unquote competitors as well. And it really goes against uh, everything that we, we think we know from, you know, like the forestry industry in particular, where the idea is that, you know, you need to space the trees out because we still have this idea, this kind of Darwinist idea of survival of the fittest, and that everyone is just out there competing against one another, um, and that you need to give a tree space and room so that it doesn't get crowded out by the others, and it doesn't get shaded, or it doesn't have people competing for water or whatever. Um, but that this is actually not the case at all, and that a tree on its own is so much more uh, you know, weak and vulnerable than a tree that's actually in its community. And yeah, I just find it really fascinating the way that they they work together. You know, sick trees as well will be nursed until they regain their health because um, it's really disadvantageous for all the members in the community to let one community, um, you know, just, or sorry, to let one person in the community just wither and die, right? And it kind of reminded me of, you know, we have all this anthropological evidence as well of, you know, early human societies where, there was evidence that people took care, obviously, of disabled people, even though there was no profit motive for doing so, right? Like there was no, um, it, it just kind of goes against our individualist kind of survival of the fittest mentality. Yeah, maybe I'll stop there. Does it, do you have, <laughs> do either of you have any thoughts on the kind of like the sharing and the nursing and the, the communal kind of aspect of trees? I wrote down um, trees are communist because, <laughs> yeah, I I was also really amazed by this because I it really seems as if they're redistributing from the rich and giving to the poor and mm -hmm. they're like synchronizing their performances. So if, if there's one that's being more successful or doing better, then they will give give more of what they have achieved and and give it to the ones who are um, functioning less well and I also thought it was really sweet the way in which the trees have a certain types of etiquette of how they can grow so they they don't lean over too much to the trees next to them and that they also pair with fungi to try and survive so they have like different types of partnerships and also the fact that um well, a lot of trees have certain friends that they they partner with. Um, I don't know how they make these friendships, but they decide, okay, we're definitely going to help each other out. Um, not that they're excluding other people, but they have certain preferences for certain types of uh, trees and decide right from the get-go, right from the beginning, oh, I'm going to, uh, we're going to pair together and make sure that our branches don't lean over too much to each other and give each other nutrients. And even if one of them becomes like a little stump on the on the ground, they'll still often give them nutrients, even if it's um, not in any way beneficial to them to to do that. Mm. And although, like you said, it's always beneficial to help out the, the ones that are struggling. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought it was also really sweet how there seems to be mother trees as well um, who take care of the child trees and mm. they, the, the little children trees want to often grow um, faster than they're supposed to. And then the mother trees, I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about gendering the trees, but I read that one of um, the 
authors that he referenced, I can't remember the name right now, but had called, had said it was like a maternal instinct that they had discovered in, in the trees. But anyway, um, they, they would stop the little trees from growing too fast because if they grew too fast um, right from the beginning, then that would not benefit them in the long run. And so they would shade them from being able to grow. And I just thought it was so sweet how that's so reminiscent of adolescents and teenagers and how they're often like just so excited to grow up <laughs> and want to do stuff and the parents have to like slow them down and make sure that they don't um yeah don't do all that and I don't know I just I think the whole time I was reading the book I just was so overwhelmed by how adorable <laughs> the the tree community was and how um and yeah and how each tree different trees had different personalities like I could really relate to the introvert trees the like loners who isolated themselves um from the community and like different tree like some were more altruistic than other trees and some wanted um were more communal and it just seems like like almost as if they have their own personalities in a way and I think yeah it's it's very very interesting yeah absolutely I I guess I should have mentioned er earlier as well that um yeah they don't just share food right they actually equalize photosynthesis amongst the whole community so that there are no differences in individuals, right? So no matter what the growing conditions of whatever tree we're talking about, um, they make sure that everyone is producing the same amount of food so everyone can thrive like just as much as the the others, right? And yeah, it reminds me of, uh, like I was say, saying my uh, supervisor, uh, well, my, I guess my ex-supervisor, um, was telling me about different plant communities. And um, yeah, I, I also felt like these, <laughs> these plants are communists, right? Because they would have a community and then let's say that they're growing up um, in the sun, but they're, you know, maybe a tree is growing up beside them. And then um, a bunch of the people, a, a bunch of the plants in the community get shaded out by the tree. Um, so they're not able to photosynthesize as much. They'll send runners, like they'll, they'll send like, you know, new, uh, plants out like around the margins so that eventually they get out into a sunny patch and then those sunny ones will then send all the food and nutrients to the whole rest of the community which is really remarkable and yeah it, it just completely goes against this idea of this individual idea of survival of the fittest and that we're all out here just competing for each other or sorry competing mm -hmm. with each other for scarce resources um and not actually you know making the most of what we can do in community so yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And then um, there's the whole question of, I guess, tree language, which I found incredibly fascinating. Um, so trees apparently can communicate with each other through various different means. Uh, one of those means is through odors. So for example, he was talking about an acacia tree in Africa which will pump toxic chemicals into their leaves to stop animals from eating them when they realize that they're being eaten. And um, he actually says that um, trees can sense like that they can sense quote unquote pain or like they can register, uh, you know, when something is tearing through their tissue um, right away, but it just takes them a lot longer to send those messages throughout their whole system so that they can actually react to that. But yeah, that basically they can register this and then they start to create these toxic, toxic chemicals. And then they also release this gas, this, um, like I said, ethylene gas. 
to basically warn the other trees in the vicinity that there's a crisis happening and there's, you know, a bunch of um, animals here that are going to eat your leaves. Because obviously for a tree, that is crisis because the leaves are how they photosynthesize and it takes a lot of energy to produce the leaves. And then so if they're being eaten, <laughs> like you want to you want to protect that so that you don't have to use up all your energy to grow more so that you can photosynthesize. And so, yeah, so odor is basically one way that they can communicate. Um, they also communicate through the fungal networks that I mentioned, the my mycelial networks. Um, and that to me was so interesting, um, just how that works. <laughs> um, and just the fact that they send these messages through electrical impulses, because to me, and I, I will get more into this later when I talk about tree brains, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's how we send messages, you know, like throughout our bodies, like electrical impulses, chemical signals, and whatnot. So you know, it's, I don't know, I just, I just find that really fascinating, because we don't think about trees communicating in this way. Um, but they can also warn each other of predators that are coming to eat them through these fungal networks. So they're, they're literally talking to each other um, through these fungal networks, which is wild, and really cool. And that's why that's one of the reasons why it's so disadvantageous for the trees to be spaced out the way that they are in plantations because they're not able to communicate with each other. So they're not able to actually warn each other of pests or different crises that might be happening. Um, so you're a lot weaker if you're completely cut off from this network and you're more vulnerable. Uh, research also out of the University of Bristol shows that trees might be communicating using sound as well, um, like a weird crackling sound in their roots. Um, and this is obviously something that is kind of being researched right now, but I think that that's also really wild and interesting. So yeah, I mean, just the fact that like they are communicating in these kind of sophisticated ways, I think is just really cool. <laughs> it's just really cool to learn about. Um, and it makes so much sense, you know, when you start to think about even even just thinking about like evolution and things that they would have obviously, you know, things that would be advantageous for them. Obviously, it would be advantageous for them to be able to communicate with each other um, if they need to protect their leaves in order to photosynthesize. Right. So I don't know. I just found this wild. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'll stop there again if, if either of you have a comment on um, the tree language stuff. I um I just had one thing to add, which is that this book, um, Brilliant Green by Stefano Mancuso, uh, he talks about the ways in which plants can communicate and learn to speak in quotation marks with animals in their language and can argue persuasively to get help that they need. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was also really interesting because it's not just um, communication between people of the same species or it's also communication between, um, yeah, with other animals. And I, I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And I also think that there's so much to be said about the ways in which plants may and may not be able to communicate with humans as well. But I guess we can get into that a bit later when we talk about um, Indigenous perspectives or psychedelics and things like that. Mm. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, he, he mentions at the end of the book that there's a theory, I guess, that part of the reason why people feel so good when they go into um, healthy forests is because we can actually sense the trees communicating with each other. And if they're communicating in a way that is mostly, 
you know, happy and at ease, then we can also kind of feel that um, because mm. we're also picking up on these on these odors and these um, electrical impulses and things like that. And there's all these studies that show um, like they did studies that looked at, you know, women who were walking through a forest versus women who are walking in like a busy city street or whatever. And it showed that in the forest, you know, their blood pressure improved, like all their all these changes happened in their body, like their cancer fighting cells increased and, you know, like all these incredible things happened um, after just one walk. Right. So it's, it's mm -hmm. so wild, like how, you know, nature philic we are, <laughs> which I just think is so, so interesting. Yeah. Um, and he pointed out too, that if you're in a forest that is not healthy, you can also feel that it'll mm. stress you out. And even sometimes the trees trying to defend themselves might be what give us allergies. Mm. So there's a lot of ways that we can interact, I guess, in a sense, or we can hear what the trees are saying if we're open to the signals. I just started reading his other book, The Hidden Heart of the Trees or The Heart of the Trees. The Heartbeat, <laughs> yeah. Something like that. And it's been interesting so far because it's actually not been about trees at all, but it's been about human instinct and how we actually have a ton of, we have like, you know, our brain, we have our gut brain, we have all these different ways that we actually do really pick up on what the plant and animal life around us is saying, but we've, you know, learned to not hear it anymore. We've learned to uh, cut that part of ourselves off. And I just think it's really fascinating that you could, if you were open to how you feel and paying attention to your body, you could sense if a forest is happy or not. I think mm -hmm. that's incredible. And I think it opens up so many, sorry, truck. <laughs> I'll always a truck. I think it opens up so many exciting avenues for us as humans, as you said, we'll probably get into more later, but just to think that we, I mean, just the way that as vegans, a lot of us have wanted people to learn how to read animals and see that they are communicating and we can be a part of that conversation. I think same with plants, you know, there, there's an invitation there that we can actually understand them and communicate with them better. And I think that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I absolutely loved everything you said. I, I was reading this book by Monica Gagliano called Fast Spoke the Plant. And um, she has such an interesting backstory because she was a traditional scientist for a while. And then she basically got chucked out of the scientific community because she started to listen to plants and try and um yeah learn from them and the scientific community was basically like absolutely not this is not proper science and got rid of her and yeah she wrote a book about all of her experiences from listening to the plants and what the plants had taught her and she said um that the book that she wrote was basically a book um not just about plants but by plants like the plants were speaking through her in the book and I thought it was so fascinating how she had these experiences of um, like ingesting I think it was Socoba and she could hear the blood sorry the plant tell her that the plant was good as a blood cleanser and mm. then afterwards she discovered from doing research that there had been loads of scientific studies that had confirmed that that was true that it was a blood cleanser and she made the point in the book why are we 
spending all this time um, researching all this scientific stuff when we could also just listen to the plants and hear what they have to say. And um, similarly with tobacco, there are ways in which tobacco could be healthy um, if ingest if it if we're not abusing it in the way that we currently are and it does have some properties that could be helpful to us and um yeah it she just goes on like there's a whole list of different examples that she gives but i just thought it was so fascinating and this isn't me saying i'm anti-science at all but definitely just i thought that her point was really poignant that why yeah if we could um open ourselves up to listening to what plants have to say to us and then how could that completely transform um, medicine or how we uh, yeah what could what lessons could we learn what what could they teach us I think it's just fascinating mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um, that sounds really cool I would love to read that um, it also was making me think of psychedelics which I don't think we're going to talk about too much in this podcast <laughs> but but that was that's you know I've definitely had experience where I've learned a lot from plants I'll say that um, <laughs> and listening to what they they have told me but um yeah and, and i think uh, on this communication theme as well it's really interesting that he pointed out that most plants communicate in this way like through their roots through fungal networks through um electrical uh impulses um potentially through sound but that the plants like our cultivated plants that are in the industrial agriculture industry have completely lost their ability to communicate both above and below ground. Mm, um, so yeah. that makes them so, I mean, that's just, it's like heartbreaking to me, but it like that also makes them so much more vulnerable to pests, um, which is probably partly why they are, you know, sprayed so heavily with pesticides and neonicotinoids, which are, you know, killing all of the pollinators and um, just having really devastating effects in our ecosystems. But yeah, I mean, I think that was also kind of a big thing for me thinking about, I mean, I, I obviously was already against uh, industrial plant agriculture. Um, but I think in like, you know, the vegan sphere, um, I, and I, I understand that obviously it's like, well, the arguments, you know, I obviously understand like why um, people are like, well, that's better than animal agriculture because like you have to grow so many more crops in order to feed the animals. So it's, you know, if you actually wanted to reduce industrial plant agriculture, then you would also have to, you know, uh, get rid of animal agriculture. Sorry, there's a siren going wild right now. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you know, I, I'll just pause for a second. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously understand, um, you know, why people come down harder on animal agriculture than industrial plant agriculture. But I, I think that we need to have just as much ire for that industry. I mean, it's terrible. It's, it's just as colonizing. Um, it's just as unsustainable uh you know the the pesticide use um itself is just deadly for so many animals um and you know look what it's doing to the plants like we we're we're killing their ability to actually live full lives together we're killing their their ability to be in community together and to communicate with each other which is something that they've evolved to do over how many millions of years you know so yeah i thought that was really um something that struck me a lot yeah, and it also just speaks to the fact that 
you know, capitalist colonial society is constantly saying that it's the most rational, logical way and the most productive, innovative, efficient, etc. But he, like you said, he makes the point in the book that actually it's much more productive <laughs> and much more like economically beneficial to um, make sure that the plants are thriving and healthy communities and not use all of this extra um, stuff that is basically killing them and not have this industrial agriculture. And obviously, I'm not saying we should argue for these things based on economic logic because we're trying to dismantle that. But even it's, I just think it's really interesting how so frequently like arguments that are made based on economics and logic and rationality are actually completely the opposite. Yeah, like obviously we're not out here trying to argue for economic rationality, but yeah, it doesn't even make sense on its own terms. So yeah, so that was the communication piece I thought was really fascinating. And then the next piece I wanted to bring up um, is probably the most mind-blowing thing to me um, because uh, it involves tree brains, <laughs> quote unquote. Um, <laughs> but just this idea that even just the very simple idea that we know that trees are learning and if they are learning, that means that they are storing information somewhere. Like to me, that was just a huge light bulb moment of like, oh yeah, right? Um, because we think that only animals can learn or that have that kind of, you know, memory. Um, and he talks about tree memories and things like that. So yeah, just knowing that they are storing this information somewhere means, you know, that they do have some kind of equivalent of what we might think of as a brain, right? Like something that is processing information, something that is storing information, and then making decisions accordingly within the organism, right? And so uh, this one Australian researcher was studying a particular type of tree that would close its leaves whenever it got, got touched. And they did these experiments where they would drop little water droplets on the leaves and initially they would close immediately but eventually they learned that um, it wasn't actually a threat that it was just water droplets so they stopped closing their leaves when the water hit them and they were able to remember this and apply the lesson that they had learned weeks later implying like I mentioned that they are storing information somewhere and that's just one example I mean even just um, there's so many examples of them just living their lives um, and, you know, learning and storing information. So, uh, you know, people are wondering, like, you know, is there some kind of tree brain equivalent? And people are looking to the roots because that would be probably the most, um, you know, rational, I guess, idea of where a, a potential tree brain could be. Um, and it's in the roots of trees where we can actually measure those chemical messages that are being set, sent, as well as the electrical impulses. And like I said before, that's kind of exactly how our brain sends signals. <laughs> you know, like that's what we would call neurological activity is um, electrical impulses, chemical messages, and whatever. So yeah, I, I just think that's so interesting. And some researchers are thinking that there is brain-like activity in the very root tips, uh, particular, because, um, you know, the root tips are where, you know, the trees are kind of growing their roots, obviously, underneath the ground, and they'll run up against different obstacles. And that's when they'll have to send those kind of electrical impulses to the tree brain and tell them like, oh, there's an obstacle I need to go around kind of thing. So, you know, there's obviously debate around whether this means that they have, you know, advanced intellectual capacity or anything like that. 
but I just think that it is it, it is so interesting that it, you know and, and it's like it's, it's not something that we are going to know I mean obviously I think there could be a lot more research into this and we're we're very um like the research on this is very new this is this is a subject that we're kind of really just delving into now or very recently but the anxiety that people have between blurring this line between plant and animal, like I said before, it's like, it's an arbitrary one. <laughs> and um, I think that the more that we learn about this kind of stuff, I mean, I just find it fascinating. Um, and we always think about animals and we want people to understand animal sentience. And we know that there's an extent to which um, we never will fully understand, right? Like you can't be in anyone else's brain. I, I don't even know, I'll, I will never know what the world looks like through either of your eyes, you know? or how sentience feels to you, you know? Um, so we'll never know that. Like, we'll never know that about our dogs. We'll never know that about any organism. So we'll never fully know that about trees or plants. Um, but, you know, just the fact that they can't communicate to us or that they don't, just that they don't have these markers of intelligence on human terms. I mean, I just, I don't think that's a reason to discount it. And I, I think it's really exciting to think about, you know? I think it's exciting as well. And, you know, I know many vegans who advocate for insects and extend, you know, their, their vegan philosophy to them. And I think if we can do that, I don't see why we can't do it for plants as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think insects and plants are exactly the same, but I do think if we look at a giant tree and a tiny little fly, I think we can make some space for the fact that those two might have some level of sentience, right? We have research coming out about insects and how, like, the ways in which they might be more sentient than we realize. And I think, yes, I think it's exciting to consider that the world around us, like so many spiritual practices say, is actually connected mm -hmm. and is alive. You know, I think one of the greatest tragedies of colonialism and modern agriculture is that it gives us a sense that the things that we consume are dead, mm -hmm. even before they're killed, you know, that mm -hmm. the things are objects. I think he talks about this at the end of the book, too. But yeah, that like trees are objects and plants are objects and even animals are objects. And I think it's really thrilling and gives us limitless just potential to consider that actually everything is alive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and I also thought it was so beautiful how he spoke about how plants often know that they're being touched and can mm -hmm. distinguish different touches and they remember being touched they don't remember you specifically being the one to touch them but yeah that they remember being touched I think that's so beautiful and even um, when he talked about trees having wrinkles and trees sweating and um, doing all of these things yeah I just think it does like you said it opens yourself up to a completely um, different way of viewing viewing the life around us and I think it just makes the world a much more beautiful place to look at like if you're out in nature and you're seeing um, all these sentient beings all around you rather than just like an a tree that is an object I think the world becomes so magical in so many ways mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like digging into the spiritual stuff, um, like it, it can really open your mind to this idea that like we all are manifestations of universal energy, right? Like we are all manifestations of energy and that even like atoms are, are basically like energy in motion, right? And so like, yeah, looking at the entire world as kind of extensions of the same kind of you know, energy. Um, I just think, yeah, it opens up so much possibilities. And I, I just find it really magical <laughs> to think about. Um, and it also makes sense, like, you know, why I feel so good in forests and, and why um, I have always had this kind of feeling of everything being alive. But, but that idea being really kind of beaten out of me by <laughs> Western, you know, capitalist ideology. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, even the kind of common sense that we have that I think, again, we can recognize with animals, right? There's so many people who knew that animals had sentience before we were able to prove it because mm -hmm. of being in relationships with animals. And I feel that you can see the same with plants. You know, I know a lot of people who love plants and are really good at growing them and will talk to them and they just mm -hmm. know that. I don't even think we can prove why yet, but they have this understanding that there is something happening there when they speak to these plants or they get a sense of what they need. You know, they're picking up on something that's being communicated. So I think I think this question of plant sentience is, quote unquote, ridiculous, only insofar as like it proves how far removed from plants we have become, mm -hmm. not because it is actually ridiculous. And I think you know, looking at ancient modes of looking at the world, we can see that that, that intelligence and that understanding has always been there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think, I agree with you. I think it's fascinating. I think it's amazing and thrilling to open that up and, and explore it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely have that experience in nature. I talk to trees. When I touch trees, I find that I feel like there's an energy <laughs> emitting between us mm -hmm. and I yeah and to your point I think there was a time where we saw ourselves at the center of the world and um, used to think that the universe revolved around us until Galileo disproved that and we used to think of animals like you said as machines um, and it's only been very recently that we give them rights and respect and some more dignity and I think this is we're kind of in the same situation when it comes to plants that we think we still have such an anthropocentric worldview that everything revolves around us as humans as the center of the world and um, that may have we may no longer think of ourselves as the center of the universe or uh, have that the sense that we're so much better than animals although I mean obviously we still do but yeah I think that plants is just another manifestation of that that will in a few decades time hopefully have been debunked and we would have a completely different worldview so yeah I, I don't think it's so um crazy to see see the same thing happening with plants as what happened with the universe as what happened with animals or is happening with animals yeah and it's it's like partly why I mean, I mean, reading reading this book made it um, even more, I guess, salient for me. But whenever I'm walking on a trail or whatever, and I come across, you know, there's there's just these trees that people will choose to carve up, and I feel like on you know well 
well-walked trails there's always like a few trees that i don't know people just decide okay this tree is going to be the carving tree and then literally everybody carves their initials into it and um you know cuts holes into it some of them might even like leave i don't know weird things like shoes or whatever on the tree and that always broke my heart and i remember like i would always like go up and hug those trees and be like i'm so sorry um <laughs> and yeah because and then now like reading this book and learning about how trees um you know register wounds and things like that and i mean he talks mm -hmm. about like trees being able to feel trees being able to maybe even have a sense of taste and sight and things like that but you know when a tree gets wounded and so many of these wounds can be fatal for the tree because if they allow um fungi to get in there and then bore into the tree then it can rot from the inside and whatever um but yeah like i'll see these trees and i'll see where they've um extended all of this energy to try to grow around the wound to protect themselves and i'm like oh my god it's just it's just like <laughs> and that was before i read the book right so it's like i i just feel like so much of this stuff is gonna like you said just become more and more salient for people and people are gonna be like oh yeah that's pretty gross and fucked up and disrespectful um that that's the way that we're treating um you know the plants around us yeah and it's just so sad that we're so removed from being able to listen to our deep intuition because we've con we're constantly being told that unless something has been proven um scientifically or unless something is like completely logical and rational then we then that knowledge is just not true and we should dismiss it completely and we're so far removed from being able to experience deep embodied forms of knowledge because we reify the intellect so much rather than spiritual um bodily sensations that we've come to completely disregard the things that we know to be true deep within ourselves mm -hmm. and i think this is just one of those those things where yeah we we just have been taught not to trust ourselves when we have these experiences mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um so yeah i don't know if either of you have any more kind of sciencey stuff you want to bring up those are kind of the main things i wanted to bring up there's definitely you know more <laughs> out there um and i think more and more is going to be brought to our attention but um yeah do you have any other any kind of sciencey things you want to bring up before i move into the the implications more uh catherine i know we both wanted to talk about maybe like the sense of time Mm. Um, I don't know if that makes more sense here or maybe. Yeah, not. yeah, that that absolutely does. Okay. Do you want to start, Catherine, or do you want me to? Um, no, go ahead. Okay. So yeah, I um one of the things I was the most taken with in the book was this idea, and I know Catherine uh definitely has feelings about this as well. Um, it was just this sense of time that I think part of the reason we can't fully comprehend trees and their internal lives is because they operate on this this scale of time that is so different from us um i know he was talking about like they send these electrical impulses and these messages um but it i think he said they move do you guys remember it was like a an inch every three seconds or something like that <laughs> yeah it was very slow it was very slow whatever it was so just just in that alone, you know, just for a message to be sent out or received takes longer than we could really comprehend 
And then the span of their lives also, you know, a tree that's 150 years old is an adolescent and Mm -hmm. is still quite young compared to its elders. An ancient forest, you know, is it's ancient (laughs) in a way that I don't think that we can fully understand. Mm -hmm. And even him talking about, you know, even people who work with trees, planting trees, and then knowing that that tree is going to be cut down in a hundred years still was blowing my mind to think about the forethought of that. So I think to me, I think we have a lot to learn from trees in terms of thinking for future generations and thinking about living our lives in a way, and this will kind of bleed into the next section, but thinking about living in our lives in a way where we're, we're considering something like that. We're considering a 500 or thousand year plan and what that's going to mean for someone or for ourselves. And I also found it interesting to consider when he was talking about foresting and how there's a common misconception that younger trees are better. Whereas after reading the book, we understand that younger trees are young, you know, and it's really the elder trees who provide the most food and the most protection and really create the environment for the younger trees to thrive. So he was talking about how they'll go in and cut down the older trees, thinking they're creating this younger forest that's going to be more, you know, vibrant and vital. And it's actually destroying (laughs) the ecosystem of the forest. And just again, how we we apply our own logic to other other beings instead of taking a step back and actually observing and seeing what works for them. So humans, you know, fetishize youth and we have this obsession with things being young and vital in a way that we understand things being quick, you know, and strong. And yet when we look at trees, it's pretty much the opposite is true. It's it's the things that are older that have taken the time to grow slowly, that have that wisdom and have that foundation set that can really help to support everyone around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to add to that, I, I, the, the part about time that I thought was really interesting is how the fact that we don't we operate on completely different timescales to the way that um, plants operate, and as a result that enables us to objectify them. And I think it really challenges us to completely rethink how we view time and the mm-hmm. the clocks and watches and the like mechanical manufactured time that we have created, which is ultimately just a construct. And I think that we our, our view of time is basically just a way for us to um, perpetuate the the fast pace of capitalism and productivity and efficiency and yes. I think it's something really profound can when we take the time to think about nature's time and orient ourselves towards nature's time um, and think okay I, I'm not going to take more from the earth than nature can renew I'm I'm going to think about the fact that when I'm polluting the earth, or not me specifically, but when the systems that we have in place pollute the earth um, through emissions, how much can nature produce oxygen to counteract that? And so that we're operating on the timescales of nature as opposed to the our manufactured timescales, because ultimately we're so reliant on 
nature it makes absolutely no sense for us for our time scales to overcome nature's time and mm -hmm. yeah I think that there is also just something so profound for me that I experience when I'm in nature of time completely stopping and I think this is often the cliche that people say when you go into nature you perceive time as different from how you perceive it when you're in a city and I think that there is something real really um profound for me about when I'm in nature and I just feel like you know what I'm a human being I'm not a human doing I'm just here to be <laughs> and exist and live and and slow down and tread gently on this earth and I'm not here to um demonically try and follow the productive fast pace of capitalism and I think that there is something yeah intuitively that I feel that, that changes my complete idea of time when I'm in nature and how we should be operating and also just yeah in terms of the global structures I think we need to completely rethink how we view time um, by listening to nature's time and learning from nature's time in order for us to um, yeah in order for us to completely save the planet I guess. Yeah like Mexi I think about the trees that you're talking about and how each cut starts off this decades long effort to heal mm -hmm. while also needing energy to grow and, you know, preserve mm -hmm. themselves. And just how would it change the way that we engage with the environment around us? If we had that insight that, mm -hmm. Oh, I cut into this tree and this tree is going to be dealing with that wound for the next, you know, one, two, three decades and may lose that battle. And I will be long gone, right? Mm -hmm. I'll probably be living somewhere else. I may be dead. <laughs> you know, the things that we're doing today have playing out over such a long period of time is just something humans are not good at considering mm -hmm. or, or understanding. Like we just, we can't comprehend that. And I do think a big part of that is capitalism and the way that we're trained to think about short term, everything in the short term and everything with immediate results. And I think it's obviously extremely dangerous. It's why we are in the situation that we're in today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That was all so well said. And I, ha I have the same thing, Catherine, like whenever I'm in nature or even like when I could just look outside and see trees and things like that, um, it allows me to be so much more present. And I do feel like I'm in this kind of eternal present where time does feel like it's just completely stopped. And um, mm. like the present moment just goes on forever and ever. And I love, like there's nothing better than that feeling. <laughs> and I'm so addicted to it, you know, but I think that we, we all are because I think that getting away from that is where you get into, you know, all of your kind of future thought, anxiety, um, you know, depression, like, I, I just find like so much in, of my life, I'm like dissociating, I'm thinking about the future and time seems to be going so quickly um, because I'm not here, right? Um, mm -hmm. But it, it does feel like I can I can tap into that when I'm kind of like in a forest or, think, or just near or looking at trees. Um, and I think that maybe intuitively, I'm just kind of picking up on that 
the time scales of their lives and the fact that like, yeah, there is nothing for them to do except be. And it kind of reminds me that there is actually nothing for me to do except be, except I'm trapped in this colonial capitalist society that's forcing me to do all this bullshit that doesn't need to be done. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to just add to that. Um, also, I think something I took from the book is a concept of scale as well. Uh, he was talking about how, you know, in a teaspoon or whatever of the soil from a forest, there's more beings than like wherever else. <laughs> I really should have written these things down. But um, <laughs> but it was just this amazing sense of scale that he was saying, you know, there's so much going on, but we can't see it. So we don't perceive it. And we put more emphasis on things that we can see that are pretty like animals, you know, animals with bright colors or whatever. And yet there is just the forest is teeming with activity and life, but it's just on this scale. It's so interesting because the trees are massive and then everything else is so tiny. And I just found that really compelling as well. The ways that we emphasize, I think, prioritize humans because we're in a lot of cases, kind of the biggest, most visible creatures that are sort of around at any given moment. And yet you go into a forest and, and the real activity is happening at this microscopic level and just in quantities that we can't even begin to understand. And I just found that really, really compelling as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Um, it reminds me of uh, one episode of Ref, Rev Left Radio, which I can't remember which one it was now, but um, in it, one of the people referenced how for a lot of Indigenous communities, they kind of make fun of how white Westerners were often talking about like wanting to go in rockets and wanting to explore the universe and um, needing to have all these like mass experiences of travel or whatever in order to feel like we've seen so much and done so much and um, all of that but for a lot of these communities who have over years and years and years developed the capacity the spiritual connection and the deep listening to the nature around them they experience that uh, like intergalactic state of being through the way they they look around them in nature and through the way they interact with um the beings around them and they don't need um they don't need to jet off to mars to have that kind of internal experience or external experience um they they have that all around them and i think that yeah I guess that goes back to what we're talking about about how magical a lot of this is mm. because yeah I can't even imagine the capacity to be able to um yeah like try and tap into that way of of seeing or hearing or I don't know sensing those kind of things around me when I'm in nature yeah absolutely I just yeah I resonate so much with with all of that um so yeah maybe let's just keep talking more about like the implications of taking this all really seriously. I think we've already been kind of mentioning some of the ways that our, um, you know, our practices and our thoughts and our ideology uh, would need to change. But I think in the last chapter that he wrote on, it's called more than just a commodity. I think he just really nails it. He really mm -hmm. makes connections between plant and animal agriculture. And I mean, there's so many that we can also bring up, right? Like, we, I mean, we've talked so many times about how this idea of like 
purity politics around like vegan consumption is not at all the kind of like total liberation <laughs> framework that we are advocating for, um, especially because like you'll never, even if you do consume quote unquote, hundred percent perfectly vegan or whatever, um, like there's still like, you'll never be a hundred percent, right? Like you're eating almonds and almond milk and whatever. And, you know, they're trucking in tens of millions even actually, but you know, just thousands and thousands of bees um, who are treated terribly to pollinate those areas, right? Like, you know, there's so much wrong with industrial plant agriculture as well that is also harmful to animals. And like I said, I mean, obviously we know that um, animal agriculture is like doubly that because again, you have to grow all these crops to then feed to the animals. Um, so it, it is doing like less harm or whatever. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it's important to understand that we're against the um, you know, the capitalist objectification and commodification of all sentient life and, you know, the anthropomorphic or not anthropomorphic, the anthropocentric, um, mm -hmm. you know, placing of ourselves as separate from these ecosystems. Right. Um, and, you know, humanizing ourselves or, you know, animalizing and, and, uh, or plantizing everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, he really just breaks it down. Like humans are animals, meaning that we need to subsist on other beings to survive and be that plant or animal. And in either case, that means that, you know, it, it doesn't mean that like we're terrible if we eat a plant or whatever. Um, I think also like a lot of the vegetables that we eat also, you don't have to kill the plant in order to eat the vegetable, right? So I know that that's, <laughs> that's true too. But you know, if we chop down a tree uh, because we need wood for our house or whatever, um, you know, it's not like we're horrible people. Um, and similarly, I would say, obviously, like, uh, you know, so many vegans, like we talked about in the speciesism uh, episode, will really malign, um, you know, indigenous hunters or whatever for, uh, for taking what they need from their ecosystem. And people will be like, oh, they don't need it. And again, <laughs> you just go go listen to that episode. But, um, you know, a lot of my indigenous, uh, comrades and colleagues, um, especially those in the North would say like, okay, you know, <laughs> you're just, you're so disconnected from what living on the land actually would, would be like. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think in either case, like, it doesn't mean like you're terrible for doing that because this, this thing is a sentient being. I think in either case, our processes should not be industrial, obviously, we should be animalizing ourselves and putting ourselves within that ecosystem and having this idea of reciprocity as our guiding framework and moving to reduce the harm and suffering of other beings as much as possible, um, no matter what, right? So I think obviously like forestry, industrial agriculture, animal agriculture, those are all out. <laughs> uh, those, are, those are all indefensible. And, you know, like moving towards more localized agroecology, permaculture, or, you know, other practices um, that are really centered around this reciprocity idea and not use value, or sorry, not exchange value uh, in, in capitalist economies, but use value in local economies, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, it might be a silly example, but I think of my basil plant <laughs> that I have. <laughs> And, you know, in order for me to have an ongoing relationship with this plant, I need to feed it and water it. And I also have to be really careful about how many leaves I take at any one time, because that's how the plant feeds itself, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it grows and that's how it stays alive. 
And I think that we could apply that type of relationship to the world around us and figure out how to consume and how to be animals on the earth without destroying the environments around us and also without trying to control the environments around us. Uh, one of the things that has always bothered me is lab-grown meat. <laughs> this is going <laughs> to piss people off. Um, and and I, I could never quite articulate why the idea of it bothered me so much. And, you know, as a vegan, I was always, it, it was always such a contentious issue because people are like, well, we need to stop eating animals. And so if we need to grow the stuff in labs, like that's what needs to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, yeah, I guess, you know, I see the logic, but there's just something inside me that always just cringed at the idea of like, there's just something not right here. And I think this book helped me to figure out what that was. And to me, I think it's the idea that we have gotten ourselves into an ideology and a philosophy that it seems more natural and right to grow food in a lab than it does to just like go live off the land. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what bothered me. And I do understand, obviously, you know, I look at the world around me and I'm like, how realistic is it for us to live off the land? How long is that going to take? Like, what do we do? We have so many people. So I, I get yeah. it. You yeah. know, it's, I'm not trying to be naive and say that like, all, you know, whatever, 8 billion of us can just easily go <laughs> start living off the land mm -hmm. tomorrow. Um, you know, that would be a huge process. And, and I, there may be some extent to which we do still need more kind of modern forms of food production. But I hope that makes sense to people listening is just this, this idea that we have, I just think when we get ourselves into back ourselves into such a corner, where it makes more sense to us and feels more right to artificially create something than it does to figure out how to just live in reciprocity with the land around us. I just think we need to take a long, hard look at that mm -hmm. because that is then still leaning on capitalism and production and distribution and products and access and all of these things that are kind of the root cause of the issues that we have. Rather than seeing that when humans behave as animals in the sense that let me live in the environment around me, let me think about how, you know, how do I eat today while making sure that I and everyone around me eats tomorrow mm -hmm. can lead us to solutions that put us more in touch with nature and put us more in our animal and even plant, because <laughs> uh, Catherine, I like plantifying humans too, our animal and plant state. And, you know, and that philosophy might look a little bit different than what mainstream veganism tells us. And mm -hmm. I think we need to be open to that because, you know, the earth is fucking falling apart. It's burning <laughs> and melting. And, you know, we need to, we need to be very realistic, I think, about where I think we need a holistic focus on what the planet needs and not just a laser beam focus on like this one moral issue that we've decided is very black and white. And that's how mm -hmm. I feel. People may disagree, but I want to be someone putting that out there because I think it's an important conversation that we need to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was so well said. And I yeah it's almost as if we're operating all the time within existing frameworks like 
yeah, let's grow lab-grown meat or let's talk about sustainability or sustainable development or the traditional view of environmentalism as just kind of changing, um, being more ecological or being changing our lifestyle habits and the same with veganism, changing our grocery list. Like we're still operating within the same capitalist frameworks as opposed to actually like fundamentally challenging our frameworks, challenging our relationship to nature, challenging our relationship to animals. And and I think that I think that we really it's not just about um how you know we've hurt nature, how are we going to make that a little bit better? It's about completely changing our relationship to nature, completely changing our relationship to animals. And yes. yeah, I, I I love that you brought up um reciprocity because I think that I it's it is so important that this reframing of our relationship that we're not just here um to take from nature and nature isn't just here to serve us but we're also here to serve nature and Robin Wall Kimra who we all love in mm-hmm. braiding sweetgrass um uh, talked about this and I think that her concept of reciprocity just really resonates with me because she's talked about how each of us we have a gift and we each of us has individual skills or um knowledge or passions or whatever and um, that can be beneficial to the land and to people and and that it's we can find ways to cultivate that gift to give to people because I guess I always whenever whenever I had reciprocity I thought it was like oh I take an apple from the apple tree and I'm supposed to give the a banana back to the apple tree I didn't like understand <laughs> but then this is like autistic very literal brain I think <laughs> but yeah for her um reciprocity is like writing and her books are like an act of love back to the the trees and that yeah that really made so much sense to me that the ways in which each of us can find um that those gifts and obviously I know that many of us are limited from being able to pursue whatever those may be because of the you know the societal constraints but still I think that's a really nice concept and I also loved how she talked about when she had an envi- environmental class she asked the students does the uh um do you love the earth and everyone said yes of course and then she asked them well does the earth love you and everyone was completely silent and I think that it is really powerful to think when we think about plant sentience if we actually have an idea that the that plants could love us back and that plants want the best for us and um and when we have that kind of reciprocal relationship of like mutual love and respect and that I think that completely transforms our relationship to the natural world as opposed to just us loving nature and um yeah I think that's definitely been a way that I've been reframing the way in which I view um the natural world because like we talked about how often when we go into nature we feel really incredible as if like the plants are are sending love to us or we touch a tree and we feel such amazing energy between us it's like it's like there is some sort of exchange and I mean how plants are literally creating food for us and the the oxygen that we need to breathe comes from trees and I just think Mm -hmm. it's it's really profound to think about like a mutual sense of of love Mm, 
Yeah, absolutely. And and she also writes about how, um, you know, uh, I think it was sweetgrass um, that the plant actually does better when humans uh, gather some of it, right? Like mm -hmm. the, they, the plant actually does better and, and thrives more when humans are taking some of it, right? And that there's, there is this kind of mutual kind of symbiotic relationship there. Um, and yeah, I just think that's really powerful, right? And like hearkening back to our episode on speciesism uh, and, you know, it not being what we think it is or whatever. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to reiterate some of, of what we talked about there and how we really define speciesism as this systemic violence that is happening, you know, towards animals, I would say, in some of these industries as well, it's happening towards plants, like it's happening towards the mm -hmm. environment at large. Um, but that, you know, that is really what we're fighting, we're fighting the systemic violence of these oppressive systems. But that, you know, the the idea of an individual person being speciesist, right? Like if you like he gave the example of forestry and how, you know, he's never ever gonna engage in any kind of forestry with big heavy machinery again. He's never gonna do a lot of the practices that he described himself doing that he felt were extremely harmful for the trees and that made them die in in uh, you know unethical ways or that you know ruined their communities or whatever. Um, and he's only going to do these, um, you know, really kind of mindful practices of like, okay, we need this tree. And so we're going to take it out. I mean, I know vegans would be upset because he was talking about using like horses or something instead of like the big machinery, but, um, you know, like getting it out in a way, uh, that is not going to be really disruptive to the entire forest or to the ecosystem, um, you know, choosing really carefully, um, and just being really mindful about that. And, you know, I guess similarly, you know, we talked about like, um, you know, many different traditions around the world and different livelihoods that are land based and how the idea of being like an individual being speciesist in that kind of a relationship with their environment is actually extremely unhelpful. And I, I'm just constantly, I guess, frustrated by the vegan community to the point that like, I don't even <laughs> like to say that I'm vegan to anyone because mm -hmm. like, it just carries, I think, so much baggage. And, you know, I was reading um, it, Simon Springer's book, recent book about anthroparchy. Um, and, uh, you know, I was quite excited about it because I really do respect him um, as a scholar and I've, you know, I've met him before. Um, but I was disappointed with many of the um, entries in the book. It was, it was kind of like anarchist political ecology and um, like animal liberation kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, but because, yeah, like a, a number of the entries, you know, like they were obviously against capitalism and understood a lot of what we talk about in terms of the fact that like, we're not going to consume our way out of this crisis, right? And this is a much broader crisis of like capitalism and colonialism and whatever. Um, but they too were kind of defining speciesism as like, you are speciesist if like, not only are we boycotting animal agriculture, but also anyone who hunts and fishes. Um, uh, 
And I was like, wow, like, I don't even think you realize like how violent and colonizing that is. Mm -hmm. And there was one, um, art, there was one chapter by someone who I actually reached out to and we had a, a productive uh, exchange about it. Um, and it was about settler colonialism and settler vegan advocacy and how completely mm -hmm. damaging and horrible that has been. Um, and he really drew, um, you know, on Marx and, um, I, again, just I guess a lot of stuff that we were saying in the speciesism isn't what you think it is uh, episode and really just pointing to like how colonial so much of this like white settler advocacy is. Um, and there's many examples, especially in Canada, you know, there's been a number of like traditional hunts that were like sabotaged by white settler animal activists, um, like the seal hunt up north, like entire communities have been like devastated by this really kind of... Um, I guess, culturally ignorant uh, activism and people don't really see like, because their idea is that like, oh, well, um, it's wrong, right? Like killing an animal is always wrong, mm -hmm. um, no matter what. And so, yeah, like with that frame, then you see any, any kind of like predator prey relationship where a human is living off the land, you're going to see that as inherently wrong and inherently violent. Um, and there were a number, uh, I mean, there were some um, chapters that were drawing on critics, like other anarchist critics who were critiquing that idea and saying that um, we shouldn't think, like we can't think about violence outside of systemic violence, like an individual, like that's mm -hmm. not a violent act, right? Um, but then these vegans were pushing back on that and being like, no, that's wrong. Like, of course it's always violent and like whatever. Um, and I just, I, I just find it so tedious. Like I'm just so, I, I'm just so tired. I'm just so tired. Of me too. I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, it inherently this idea that eating slash killing animals is always wrong. Full stop is locking us into a settler mindset because mm -hmm. then we cannot. We cannot, under that framework, accept that plants have sentience, right. right? Yes. Because we've, again, we philosophized ourselves into a fucking corner. If we believe that anything that has any kind of, you know, aliveness, personhood, sentience, whatever we want to call it, is then it's murder to consume that thing, then we cannot allow ourselves to see plants in that way, mm -hmm. which again means that we're always going to be removed from nature. We're always going to feel that we're separate and different and above, different from and above plants. And, and above, I mean, in terms of like, we may see ourselves as uh, the stewards of the land, or we may see, you know, we... I think a lot of vegans see themselves as like the protectors of nature, but it's in this very removed way. And it's in this very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, like you're acting superior to nature. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I have this brain and we have all these tools and technology. So we have to use that to like protect nature from mm -hmm. everyone else. So like no one can eat an animal ever again because we decided that's bad. Right. But then again, then we get like lab grown meat. And it's like, are you telling me that like people living on like a coastal, like on a coast, it's better for them to get like lab grown meat shipped into them than it is for them to just fish sometimes? Really? Mm -hmm. Like, is that where we're going with things? And it just, and it, yes. And it just inherently keeps you separate from nature. 
and mm-hmm. from plants and how they work and from this idea that everything around us could be alive and could be in community and we need to plug back into that rather than to say oh humans are so intelligent that we have to control nature and control everything that's happening to nature around us in order to quote unquote protect it. Nature doesn't need us to protect it. Nature needs us to stop fucking with it, right? And like get back into reciprocity with it. But nature is just fine. Like we're not the parents of nature. (laughs) We are the children Mm -hmm. of nature. And we need to, and I think like, I'm going to say it. I think a lot of what vegan like a lot of what appeals to people within veganism is that you're advocating for this sort of concept and this this um class of people who can't speak the same language to then say how they want to be advocated for. And mm. you get to sort of take all of these philosophies and run with them as far as you can and then use that as a way to create strict rules for the world around you and categorize people into, you know, whether they're good or bad, Mm -hmm. you know, to simplify it, um, whether they ascribe to your same exact philosophy or not. And Mm -hmm. that sounds like a religion to me. It doesn't sound like a political ideology. It doesn't sound like anarchism or communism or any of these other things that I think do guide a lot of us. And I worry about philosophies that separate us, you know, enhance this um, sense of human exceptionalism is what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get at, and also create divisions between people. Yeah. I hear a lot of vegans say, oh, if someone medically, like, has, like, a medical need to eat meat, then that's fine. And it's like, but do you know how difficult it is to be a disabled person and then have to prove that you have a medical reason to do anything? Mm-hmm. That's like our entire lives, right? Mm-hmm. That's the struggle of every day of our lives is getting people to believe us about what we need for our bodies. Mm-hmm. And where's the line? Does someone who has an eating disorder or used to have an eating disorder, is that a medical enough reason? Like, you know, mm-hmm. if someone's just really depressed and like can't function very well, is that a reason enough? I just mm-hmm. think putting these these barriers on people and putting these restrictions on them in order for us to, again, just kind of reinvest ourselves in human exceptionalism is really dangerous. And Mm -hmm. in my time in the vegan community, I have really seen honestly nothing but problems with that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's incredibly antagonistic, yes, against indigenous people, against Mm -hmm. disabled people, against people who are just dealing with a lot or you know, maybe don't have the knowledge of how to cook a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who are financially insecure, I just gobs of people. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, at that point, what are we doing? Because I think any leftist philosophy that I want to be committed to is going to be one that builds community mm-hmm. rather than fractures it. Mm-hmm. End rant. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That was so well said. Uh, sorry, Catherine, were you about to say something? No, I have nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that was absolutely so well said. Um, yeah, and um, I mean, like, I get it, right? Like, I am yeah. I am someone who has grown up in suburbia, like, you know, like white suburbia. Um, I have always gotten my food from grocery stores um, and you know, I've not been in a situation where I've been food insecure. Um, 
I I'm so disconnected from what any kind of a life like on the land would look like. So yeah, I would personally find it like, like I would not be able to go out and hunt an animal. <laughs> like I just, mm -hmm. I would not be able to go out and like shoot an animal and look at it. And like, that would just throw me into such a weird existential spiral. Um, but that doesn't mean that like, like I can understand that that is my subject position. Um, and, you know, like when I listen to all of my Indigenous colleagues and like, you know, I'm so blessed to be able to work with so many inc incredible um, Indigenous leaders in Canada and, you know, like, yeah, like learning about their territories, learning about their lives and their traditions and whatever. Um, like, I'm able to just understand that, like, yeah, I have a different subject position, um, but that that doesn't, you know, like my vision of animal liberation, you know, is is consistent with, um, you know, liberating animals from the animal agriculture industry. Um, but I don't need to like go that step further and then say that like, yeah, like nobody um, can live off the land in any kind of meaningful way. Like that doesn't actually make sense. And it's obviously not my place to say as well, like as a settler, like, I, like, you know, it's been so settler um, vegan advocacy has been so incredibly um, colonizing and damaging. And I don't know, I just, um, I hope that we can do better, right? Because um, yeah, I'm, and even just in terms of the consumption thing, I mean, we know that we're not going to consume our way out of this crisis. We know that these industries aren't necessarily even feeling losses from uh, vegan consumption um, because they're being bailed out or they're shifting their, uh, you know, their sales overseas and whatnot. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I just really hope that this plant sentience kind of discussion can really maybe open up and kind of shift the discourse of this entire movement to actually be a political movement, to actually be something that is focused around total liberation, you know, decolonial solidarity, and yeah, getting back into right relationship with, with our natural world. And I mean, as you said, like, it is really difficult because it's not like, you know, you're right, we are 8 billion people. It's not like we could all just go and live in reciprocity with the land sustainably. Like that's not a thing that can happen. Um, but I mean, we can think about ways to improve urban food security and, um, you know, thinking about the urban environment and innovative ways to kind of rewild this space. And, um, and again, think about reciprocity in these spaces as well, because there are a lot of innovative ways that, that, you know, even cities can be food secure. Um, and we could have a lot more green space or kind of innovative ways of growing food in cities and things like that. And I don't know, I'm kind of rambling now, but I just, yeah, I, I, I've just been quite, I guess, frustrated with a lot of these discourses. And I think that, plant sentience doesn't have to, um, you know, shatter our, I mean, if plant sentience does shatter our, our ideology, then I think we have a problem. Right. Um, yeah. and so I, I think that like the, the framework that we're putting forward, the kind of total liberation framework that we're putting forward is not one that would be, be shattered by this discussion on plant sentience. It can accept that idea of plant sentience, um, and incorporate that into like a broader ethic of being, that is truly anti-capitalist, that is truly decolonial and, you know, not replicating this, this, this bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do think that so much of, like you said, what has been so tedious about all of these vegan um, arguments is 
I think just a deliberate strategy from um, like like the v from the animal agriculture industry or from capitalists looking to profit from this to completely co-opt our movements to make us be arguing to make us argue about all of this vapid these vapid things that ultimately aren't that significant um like i don't know um all the different lifestyle choices and whether or not you should be doing this or that when it's just distracting us from the larger conversations that should be happening and distracting us from the actual systemic issues that are going on and yeah I'm I'm exactly like you I'm just completely exhausted by all of this and I also think that it's it's difficult because I think a lot of people think well are you saying that when I'm when I'm reading a book I'm I'm holding a dead corpse a tree corpse <laughs> or something <laughs> or like should I feel like a murderer whenever I put wood in the fire and it's burning alive and all of this and I think and I think that yeah the vegan lifestyleism leads inherently to this kind of mm. way of thinking because it's uh, everything is just inherently um, murder like you said and then as a result um, we can't it's yeah it's just like this all or nothing black and white way of thinking and then that means that inherently all of this feels like we're killing a, a dead tree corpse when really it's just about it's yeah it's not about trying to say let us um yeah this is inherently this like consuming animals is inherently bad or consuming plants is inherently bad it's inherently murder it's about um taking what we need um using that with love and respect uh, trying to avoid causing suffering as much as we can and then allowing the plants allowing the animals to live in harmony as as much as they can and I think that should be the orientation rather than just like black and white thinking because I also think it just inherently makes us more disembodied from our intuition and our um, like our embodied experience, like you said, Nicole, with um, people with disabilities and stuff. If we're having a very black and white way of thinking and saying this is inherently bad or this is inherently good, then people can't um, think about their own experiences of like, I know so many people who've had eating disorders and were physically incapable of leading a vegan diet, but completely didn't listen to their own um, bodies which is completely understandable because of the kind of vegan rhetoric that goes around and then as a result um, yeah that caused them so much more damage and I think the whole point of these kind of um, way like lenses through which to view the world is to make us more embodied and make us more able to listen to our intuitions and like live in that kind of um, more sensual way I want to say sensory way like less about um just the black and white intellectual rational logical view but thinking in terms of all aspects of ourselves our mind body spirit emotions etc and I think that yeah this kind of logic completely removes us from that yeah I love that I think you know the three of us have been talking a lot about cycles uh, off offline, <laughs> I'm talking a lot about cyclical living and just how capitalism uh, forces us into such a kind of linear and such a um, repetitive sense of, you know, you should be able to do the same things every day at the same level. And that's not really how bodies work. 
And I think that ties into, you know, the idea of eating a plant-based diet, a quote unquote vegan diet. You know, I've seen so many times that people get mad at, for instance, someone during their pregnancy, having the intuition that they need eggs or something. And that person being like a betrayer to the movement, rather than seeing like that person's body is in this cycle of production and their intuition was telling them that they needed this thing. And that that is actually like a really great way to live in the world, right? To be connected to yourself and to what you might need in the environment around you for the phase or cycle of life that you're in. And I just agree with you that the way the way that we have this ideology just puts us just completely unable to be in tune with ourselves and ironically with the world around us and with other people around us. I also think, you know, since uh, Mexi, you did post the male gaze episode, I also think it's a very kind of like patriarchal masculine way of viewing things because again, people with, um, we'll say female reproduction do move in a different cycle than the way that people with male reproductive systems do. And it is this very capitalistic way. The The idea that you wake up every single day with the same hormonal makeup, the same amount of energy, mm-hmm. the same experience in your body is one that does not pertain to people, <laughs> let me tell you, who <laughs> have periods and who experience a cycle, you know, that's generally roughly based on like a 28 day cycle. Mm-hmm. We have weeks where we're more active, where we have more energy, and we have weeks where we have less energy and we need to be more quiet and reserved and resting. And so this idea that we're on a 24-7 kind of cycle is one that is very capitalistic, very patriarchal, very, you know, colonizer-minded. And I think that veganism, having this idea that your body needs the same kind of nutrients all the time and can be on the same sort of diet every single day for the rest of your life falls into that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't allow for people to be in tune with themselves and with their cycle and what they need at any given moment. And I agree. I just think that, again, just further divorces us from the rhythms of life around us, whether it's inside our own bodies or outside of us in nature or in other people's bodies And I find that really disturbing and honestly quite sad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, if you think about it and the way I think about it is like, okay, well, you know, yeah, if we abolish animal agriculture and we were to be living more locally and like with our environments and, um, you know, in, in greater reciprocity with the environments that we were in, then people just naturally like in order for that to even be a reality, people would have to drastically reduce the amount of uh, animal (laughs) proteins that they were eating anyway. Right. So it's like, that is obviously like, obviously the goal is to have animals liberated and to reduce suffering as much as possible. But I just, yeah, I just find it so tiring when people go that extra mile um, because then it really does stigmatize a lot of peoples and cultures and, um, it just just unnecessarily, right? I, I just anyway, you guys know we can we can go we into know. on that. <laughs> <laughs> I could just repeat that over and over forever. But um 
but yeah, um, anyway, I, I think this has been just a really good conversation. I don't know if either of you have any kind of closing thoughts you want to leave off with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just, again, thrilled <laughs> to be learning more about this and to um, allow it to expand our theory and um, our ideas about living in the world. And yeah, bringing it back to the timescale idea, like yesterday, actually, I was part of this conference, I was um, moderating this discussion of um, three really amazing Indigenous leaders um, in Canada, and um, they were talking about Indigenous economic theory and practice, um, and this idea of concepts of love uh, and belonging. And um, one of the person, one of the speakers was, was sharing that, um, you know, they really felt this sense of love and belonging, learning about how their ancestors were um, thinking in these kinds of 300-year uh, timescales, right? So they were thinking about the seventh generation or whatever, um, and just thinking about, you know, people that they didn't even know hundreds of years ago, having the foresight to consider them in their current plans and practices for how they were going to live in order to take care of those future generations. Like they just felt so loved um, and like they they really belonged um, and, and just a real sense of, of that continued responsibility to carry that forward for, you know, 300 years in the future. Um, and I think that, you know, if we are going to learn from trees, this kind of expanded timescale um, and this idea of reciprocity and, and not, um, you know, focusing on like purity politics or strict consumption-based things that um, do end up demonizing other people and making some people seem like they're barbarians, frankly, which is like extremely colonial. You know, I, I just think that it's clear the way forward. And I think that we can have a really productive and useful and effective movement that merges um, human liberation, uh, animal liberation and plant liberation and, you know, tree one liberation, right? Total liberation. One, one might say <laughs> total liberation. Um, we can move towards that. We just, I think we need to shed a lot of like the baggage yeah. of like the white vegan bullshit. Yeah. I think people just need to be honest with themselves about where that's coming from. You know, I had to think about this too, in my whole process of being a vegan and I think, you know, we're living in a world where it's really comfortable to have very black and white thinking and to think, you know, the rules and, you know, to be generous to people. I know for myself, one of the biggest draws for me to veganism was the idea that every day I could be making a difference, right? I could mm -hmm. actually be positively impacting a wrong in the world and um, doing my part. And it was a hard lesson to actually look at the data and to read more philosophy and to expand my mind and realize that like, no, <laughs> I really wasn't doing anything mm -hmm. uh, in, in any kind of material sense. I wasn't making a material difference for the animals really. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, I under I do have I know I've been spicy today and probably on the other episode too but I do I do understand and have some measure of sympathy that you know if you really believe that animals have sentience and I think pretty much all of us have been in some kind of relationship with some animal that we loved very much and definitely saw it as a 
a person, Mm -hmm. I can understand how upsetting this all is and how easy it is. Yeah. To believe that like animals should just always live their lives. But I do think it's, it's a dangerous path to go down in too strict of a sense um, to forget that we are also animals and that Mm -hmm. though some of us maybe can be herbivores and do that and be fine, there really isn't any inherent moral value to eating animals or not. The morality is really more around how we're treating the environment around us, how we're treating each other and how we're treating all living beings uh, in terms of commodification, exploitation, you know, even after reading this book, I'm looking out my window and there are some beautiful palm trees right across the street that I always love looking at. But now I can see how violent it is for those palm trees to be there. They're not native to the area and they're by themselves, right? They're spaced mm-hmm. out very far apart on the sidewalk. And now I understand that that means that they're just blazing and burning in the sun. I'm in Southern mm-hmm. California, so they're really literally like <laughs> burning in the sun all day. And, you know, they're going to get cut down when their roots overtake the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a very violent existence. And it's very selfish of us as humans to want there to be this freaking tree on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And That's okay, but that doesn't mean that me going to have, you know, my lentil soup after we end this call is me being like a cannibal. You know, it doesn't (laughs) mean I'm a murderer because I'm eating plants, Mm -hmm. even though I can also see the ways in which we're exploiting plant life around me in ways that are cruel and just also um, not effective, right? It's not effective for us to have trees in this environment. There are probably other plants that would fare much better and serve a better purpose, whatever. But yeah, it's okay to, I just want to say like it's, veganism becomes so rooted in our own identity of ourself, which is what it to me is so dangerous about it. Mm -hmm. But I want to give people permission, like it is okay (laughs) to explore and expand your philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not going to mean that you were uh, wrong or that you're a bad person or anything like that. It just means that we all always have more to learn. There's so much mystery and wonder around us. And we can't be expected to know all of that the second we're born. You know, our lives are this journey of discovery. And I just think veganism maybe got a lot of us to a certain place, but there's so much further to go. And that should be exciting and not something that, you know, trashes your idea of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was absolutely well said. Um, Catherine, did you have any closing thoughts? Uh, sorry, yeah, I just muted myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I loved that so much. And I, my closing thoughts, I guess, are just that I find, I think that it's so important to pay attention to the ways in which we are so interconnected with the world around us. And I think that as humans who grow up in this um, hellhole of a system, we're often taught that (laughs) dependence um, is a really bad thing and signifies weakness and vulnerability because hyper-individualistic culture obviously doesn't want us to believe that. And we often have also this very win-lose mentality that like, oh, we can't possibly see animals as the same as us or we can't possibly see um, plants as the same as us um, or having as much value or dignity or worth or whatever because um, yeah we're so schooled into this competitive mindset that we think that um, we need to always be the dominating force and I think that it can be so liberating to just 
see our, see the ways in which we are interconnected and it's so dependent on the natural world and I really think so much of um, recognizing plant sentience or at least um, giving it some some thought uh, is is just a really fundamental project of anti-colonialism because I do think it is such scientific colonization that we completely devalue what we can learn from plants and the traditional indigenous knowledge about plants and our relationship to them and the way in which we try and patent so many plants with genetically modified organisms and all of these things is just incredibly horrifying and just just so many forms of colonial exploitation and I think that we need to challenge the ways in which we have all been indoctrinated into this one very specific worldview and lens through which to view the world which is very yeah scientific and how there might be other ways of um yeah seeing the world that move beyond that I really love how um Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about what if western scientists saw plants as their teachers rather than their subjects and I think that yeah I, I really love the idea of just constantly having a relationship with plants where we see them as our teachers and like she says like um how a lot of elders would give the advice to like go and be amongst the beaver people see what they have to say um if you have a problem stand um go stand amongst the trees or something like that because um it's just reminding us of their capacity to teach us and for us to learn from them and um yeah and I, I think that I would also really encourage people something that I'm trying to do as well is just to have such a deep relationship of playfulness and childlike wonder when it comes to nature because I think there is something about children who have been not yet indoctrinated that they they do see a lot of the time plants as their friends and as um, in relationship with them and I think that there is something so joyful about and being um, being amongst nature and just reigniting that childlike wonder and curiosity um, amongst the people all around all around us and also I just think that when it comes to listening to plants I think that it really can open us up to challenging the way in which we think about language in general because I think that we are taught so much that the only way language operates is through words and the only way that we can listen is through words and hear um but i think that there is like a language that moves beyond that whether it's uh the language of the spirit or the language of something else and energy whatever you want to call it i think there is like ways of listening that move beyond just um literal sounds and and yeah even like taste and touch and smell and things like that um things that can really touch you on a soulful level and like I say all this and I mean I'm still it's not like I'm always <laughs> going out and listening to plants and I I definitely have a lot to learn myself I'm not like um really great at listening to plants or anything but these are just the things that I'm trying to cultivate and um just on the language thing I also think it's so interesting to me one thing that really stuck with me in the book 
um, of the Hidden Life of Trees was when he referred to the tree as injured. And it was just such a light bulb moment for me because I was like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Like the way that we use language in relation to plants just is so significant because if you say, oh, the plant is injured as opposed to uh, the tree was um, has a dent in it, it just completely changes like how you view the thing that has happened. And I, it's just made me want to change the, the language that I use when it comes to plants and like think, think so much about the ways in which we use language, the way that our language objectifies nature and the way that our language um, doesn't in any way acknowledge the, the suffering or joy of, <laughs> of plants. And um, yeah, anyways, I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for all that. That was really well said as well. Um, yeah, one of my uh, colleagues says that English is the language of commerce. <laughs> um, and I think, again, like Robert Walkermer talks about the difference between English and um, many indigenous languages that are more animate versus inanimate. Um, so yeah, just thank you both for having this uh, really compelling conversation. Um, I'm very interested to know how it's going to land with people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you uh, come through the comments. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, this has been so great. Thank you both. And um, yeah, looking forward to our next sex stream. And uh, yeah, so everyone, I will put um, all of their projects in the show notes. You can check them out and be sure to check out the Patreon if you want to join our community chat that we're going to do about this very topic. Um, but yeah, just thank you guys and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> <laughs>